you know, making movies is hard. Making movies is hard. Welcome. This is a podcast about the struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I'm Alark Russell, the founding host of the podcast, and I'm a sci-fi horror filmmaker. And my first feature film, The Alternate, is playing the film festival circuit right now. And hey, guess what? It's online at the Shockfest Film Festival this weekend, starting December 10th. So check it out online and support that film festival. I'm Liz Manischel. I'm a writer, director, producer who has made two features and is currently in development and about five more. I'm a distribution consultant who does sales. And I used to manage Sundance's Creative Distribution Initiative. This week, we welcome filmmaker Alan C. Gardner on the show to talk about his experience of making 16 feature films, either as a lead actor, writer, producer, or director, and sometimes all of four of those things, and how he has managed to sustain his filmmaking career lifestyle over the years. And after that, Liz and I talk over an article from USA Today about the pandemic paving the way for diversity in filmmaking and inclusive films. Maybe. And lastly, I get to ask Liz a question about when she was faced with a really tough challenge on set. But before we get all that crap, Liz, how are you doing? (laughs) I'm good. I decided that I'm going to take acting classes because I want to be a better director. Yeah, I just posted on Twitter about it. I actually, I don't, I don't, I'm not very open about this, but I really, really, really wanted to be an actor for like the majority of my life, majority of my young life. And I did plays and classes and theater companies. And I had like the monologue books. I had all of the things. And then I got in a fight with my acting teacher in high school, my drama teacher, and it got real ugly. And I shut off that part of myself for like 18 years. And so I've decided, well, fuck it. I'm going to open that door again and try to become a better director by re-getting in touch with what I used to love. So that is what I'm thinking about right now is acting. How are you? I have to ask the million dollar question. Are you going to start directing yourself in movies? Is that something that you're thinking about? Like, oh, you'll write a role and then you'll act and direct? or Are you more like, okay, like I just want to act and then just see where that goes and act in other people's work? I don't want to act in other people's work. I'm not interested in that. Oh. (laughs) I mean, I might find out through this acting class that I really want to act again. My guess is that I do not. My guess is that I might be able to become a better director. And I think I am putting myself in my next project as like a smaller character because I don't think I can test. I think it's a good gauntlet to put myself through is to direct myself on screen while also directing a feature and seeing if I can communicate to the actors. And I don't think I'm a great communicator to actors. And I, so I just want to get better. I've told you that I was also an actor yeah. at a time and that yeah. I had headshots and I went on auditions and all that stuff. And I didn't do that. I didn't. I, it was just college productions and things like that. Oh, okay. Yeah. At one, one point, I kind of just realized that like I wasn't either very good at it or I didn't love it enough to keep mm-hmm. on going with it. And I was like, you know what? I'll be better behind the camera. And then in my mind, I was like, you know, and then I'll be like one of those people that if like my friends, my filmmaking friends ever asked me to be in their pieces or their work, I'll do that. But I'm not going to actually go out and audition. And then, yeah, you know, whatever, 10 years later, not a one person has asked me to be in anything. <laughs> and I don't think it's ever going to happen. So I'm just like, well... Actually, I wasn't. I wasn't Red Snow, the movie I produced. That's true. That's right, because you got the fit, the mask thing done to your yeah. face, right? And I was so insecure about being in it that I was like, "Oh, Sean, uh, did I do okay? Is is it a good job? Like, are you going to cut this scene for the movie?" He's like, "Dude, shut up. It's fine. You're doing good." I was like, "Okay." I can't remember when I said something else. I was like, "Oh, is, is this coming along?" He's like, "Dude, that's not what's happening here. You're doing great." I'm like, 
okay, I'll stop, you know, as being a weirdo about well, like, but you oh, were, I'm not a good It's actor. scary. Uh, of course you're going to ask because you know the shit we talk on the other side of the camera about what's going on in front of the camera. So, of course, yeah. you're going to be worried. I mean, and it was like, you know, I don't want to ruin it, but like, it's not like just like I have a moment where I have to look terrified and like empathetic on camera. And like, it's supposed to be a big moment for the lead actor to like have this, this turn. And I was like, I, I'm not that good of an actor. I can't do this. And I didn't even watch it. I couldn't watch, you know, I haven't seen it yet because I, I had a rough cut of the movie, but I was like, I just yeah. couldn't watch that part. So I watched part of it. I watched like the before the big moment, but I didn't watch the big moment. So anyways, yeah, I can relate to the wanting to be an actor, but like, I don't think I really have it in me to do it now. Well. <laughs> What, okay, first of all, I totally get everything, every fear you have. I think my perspective right now is I'm looking for things to get over, if that makes sense. And I had really, really bad stage fright as an actor. Mm. So for me, I want to get over that. I want to see, can I actually like come up against that and come through the other side? So I'm looking at it actually as like a personal challenge. I don't wake up every day and think I really want to act. So it's not about that. And that's why I don't want to be at other people's projects. But I think, Alric, that you should watch yourself in this movie. Well, I will. I pre-ordered it. When I get it on DVD, (laughs) I'll put it into the big big screen and I'll watch it. But yeah, I don't know. It's just really interesting. Don't you think the podcast has helped you at all, though? Because like... Years ago, when I first started, I felt like I used to be more shy speaking in public and used to be more shy when having to address crowds or, you know, do anything where I was speaking to a group. But mm-hmm. I think the podcast has helped me get over that. And like, I feel like now I just, I have no problem talking. I'll talk in meetings. I'll talk to the street. <laughs> Strangers want to hear things. I'll just spout <laughs> off. I'm like, I'm ready to go at any time because I just, I just talk like an hour every week. Does that play into like getting no. over... Because I was on camera for like four years on that PBS TV show. So it's not about being a camera. It's about remembering my lines when I'm on camera or on stage. Mm. It actually exhibits itself in my memory. And so when you and I are just shooting the shit, like I don't have to remember anything. So I don't mind it at all. Like I'm not afraid of it at all. It's if someone were to give me a speech and then I would have to say that, that I would be pretty scared. But when I about you're pitching or you're doing your Kickstarter videos, is that all like Because like you have to memorize stuff for that, don't you? Yeah, I haven't done a Kickstarter video for like five years. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, the last crowdfunding video I did like a little, you know, clip for Lena and it was like 30 seconds and I just talked from the heart. Right, right. I don't know. I put a lot of pressure on myself during those years and I was very unhappy and I just want to revisit them and try to like create a, a new definition for myself as a performer. Nice. That's awesome. Thank well, you, I'm excited to hear how it goes. Yeah, we'll see. I've tried to find a class, but how are you? Because I think you told me a little bit about how you are. Yeah, I'm doing okay. Just juggling, figuring out how to raise my beautiful daughter while doing work and being a filmmaker and yeah. pursuing awesome opportunities, you know, and I also have like, you know, I've got the two contracts for my distribution deals that like have been revised and I have to read them. And I'm like <laughs> asking my lawyer and my producer to read them to like, hey, so... Yeah. Is it all good now? Are they good now? Because <laughs> I read one. I'm like, this looks like, I don't know. This looks the same. It, it looks like it's, they did all the things we asked them to do, but I don't really know because it's, it's so hard to tell. thick, you know? And then the other one, I haven't even, you know, I, I mean, I read it once, but I need to read it again. And it's just like, I'm, I'm basically just 
procrastinating on doing that. Although I know that I need to sign those to get the ball rolling with the movie and everything. So it's like, that's one thing. And then, yeah, I have an opportunity to pitch a movie at a pitch panel event through the Silicon Valley Film Festival, which I got into and I didn't even know for like two weeks because like it went to my junk or something. But yeah, I got into this film festival. I've been trying to get in for a couple of years because I heard from a good friend of the show, Tony Gaspiatone. Oh, yeah, yeah, Brave Maker. Yeah, Brave Maker. You know, that's a really good film festival and that they have these pitch things that they do. And so I finally got in and it's super exciting. And it's like, oh man, the pitch video is due tomorrow. <laughs> and I've written like half of it and I haven't practiced. And it's like, yeah, like you're talking about, it. it's one of those things where yeah. like you could talk from the heart a little bit in a pitch video, but you kind of have to hit points, you know, and like you have to get the right information across, especially if you're trying to, you know, do it in a concise manner. But you're an so. editor, so you could probably just like stuff something full of <laughs> My head information just pops over here. Yeah. <laughs> completely jumping around jump cuts just use inserts of your work to cover cuts i mean you're fine yeah i mean i do have the short film that i made for the feature version that we have so i mean i'm definitely gonna be able to use that in the pitch video which is nice so i don't know but it's just trying to find time to do all these things and like do the holidays and be a good dad and be a good husband and like you know take care of the house and do my job and it's just like, there's just so many things and like, I don't know, I feel like a little overwhelmed right now, but I'm, I'm pretty excited because we get two weeks off at my job for the, the holidays. So I'm going to have like two weeks wow. where I can get to play catch up on a bunch of stuff. So yeah. I, I have like 126 drafts of emails that I haven't <laughs> sent that I've started to write. So my goal for that two weeks is to get down to zero. So I have no more drafts that I either like delete what I started to write three years ago or right. I actually send the email. <laughs> Just be done with it. Move on. But yeah, but things are good. You know, I just, I wish there was more time to do all the things like work on this pitch, write my new script that I'm like working on. It's just, I don't know, Liz, where's the time? There's just no time. There's just because I'm slightly further along in parenthood than you are. I want to say that there's never enough time. That feeling never changes. I feel it right now, but I've learned to just kind of like push it down and suppress it in, un- in unhealthy ways. In which it will erupt years from now in some sort of embolism. But for now, it's like you just recognize there's no time. There's and just no like, time. It's just a fact. I've been doing this thing where last week I was really good. Three days a week before the, the holiday, I got up at six and I went working out my little gym that I have in my garage. And I'll have this terrible feeling like I'll be like doing my workout. And I'm like, Ulrich, you shouldn't be working out. You should be writing right now. No. And it's like, no. But, but I need to do this too. But then it's like, okay, well, then I guess I get up at five. No. And then I get up at five and no. I can write for an hour. No. Then I can work out for an hour. No. And then I can raise my daughter. So that, <laughs> that's like my new plan. And then I woke up at five this morning and I was so tired because I'd stayed up late working on the pitch. Yeah. And I was like, I can't live on like four and a half hours of sleep. Like this is just not good. So I went back to sleep and then I slept straight through six all the way to seven. <laughs> so I missed my workout again. And... It's just like, okay, well, I guess I'll try again tomorrow. See how that works. Yeah. I think (laughs) my priority is health and family are first, no matter what, right? So it's like, if sleep is the priority right then, then that's health. So you're saying don't feel guilty for doing my workout over writing. I should do that. A thousand percent. You (laughs) living one day longer is more important than you getting your writing done. Okay, good to know. Well, that makes me feel a little bit better. <laughs> it's like 100% what I believe in. Your, your workout is more important. That's awesome. Well, I have another thing that's awesome to talk about, that we have a happy birthday to Carter Smith. Yay! Thanks so much for the love, Carter. I mean, my God, it's amazing. Carter Smith is all the dead boys. 
All the dead boys. So you might remember when we were reading YouTube comments. Yes. I think, did he also give us an iTunes review? I think he might have. I think so, because I remember really harping on about that username at that time. Yeah. You should all check out his website, All the Dead Boys, because he has these really great films in there. And it's like genre film to the max. And I don't know. I I actually queued up one of his short films to watch. I haven't watched it yet, but I think I'm going to watch it with my lunch. Today or tomorrow, because it looks really cool. And his, his feature film that he just, he's in post now also looks really cool. I just saw one still, but it looks oh. dope. So happy birthday, Carter. Thank you again for your support. And I hope you enjoy this very special day. To everyone else, don't forget to support us on Patreon, www.patreon.com slash MMIH podcast. You can check out all the wonderful things on there. We're also going to have a new video soon one day when there's time to do things. You should also check out the International Screenwriters Association, the ISA. It's an organization designed to connect writers and filmmakers through a number of programs they offer, including publishing your logline to a network of industry professionals, consultation courses, contests, and their top 25 writers list featuring some of the best writers in their network. So head over to www.networkisa.org to sign up for free today. But I think without any more jibber-jabber and nonsensical talk, here is our chat with Alan C. Gardner. So, Alan, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for being here. Yeah, thank you. Give us the elevator pitch for your film, Cold Feet. Okay. At a rented house, Eddie and his best friends unite for his bachelor party. The next day, a fight for Sandy and survival begins when they discover there are snipers outside and a ghost inside, none of whom want the guys to leave. Are you reading off of something or was that memorized? <laughs> a little bit, but I started reading off something, then I just realized I had it memorized. So I'm like, I'll just keep talking. I even look at the this thing. This guy is prepared. <laughs> How many days did you shoot? 16. And what was the rough budget, if you could say? Around 75,000. Oh, that's like the magic number we hear a lot. Yeah. How did you come up with the idea? So I was on, I'm from Memphis originally, but I was on a layover back home a few years ago and i just had the urge to start coming up with the next project and i knew i wanted it to be i hadn't really done anything in the comedy horror realm before and my good friend brad and i who i've worked with brad for like 26 years now so a long time and i wanted to come up with one for he and i to direct together another one for us to direct together so i zeroed in the genre then and i realized i wanted to do so eight main cast members myself and seven of my closest friends I'm like okay i'm gonna write roles for the eight of us but I'm not going to precast the roles. I'm going to write these roles and then we'll draw names from a hat and that'll determine who plays who. <laughs> so that's what we did. So basically I had so much fun with all of this. So basically I went and wrote most of the scripts, had a cold read with all the guys. None of them you know, knew what was going on. They just had agreed to be on this project that they knew nothing about at this point. So, which is a lot of trust on their part. And then a lot of trust on my part for being like, you know, whoever, <laughs> whatever role you draw, that's who you're going to play. So anyway, on that layover, I came, I came up with all that. I knew there'd be one location. I knew there'd be a ghost. And I knew there'd be a dead body in the morning. And that's kind of what I figured out then. And I went from there. I have 80,000 questions. <laughs> but this one is, how long did you spend working on the film from the idea to its release? So when was that layover and talk yeah. about the release? So, okay, the layover was August 2015. The shoot was a long time ago. Actually, it was July 2017. And there was just a long time of... Well, for one thing, when I made the movie, I was single. Then right after, I fell in love and kids and marriage and stuff. And then, you know, with indie film as is, it's typically anyway, the, the post-production process can take a while, at least for, for me. So we just released it in September of this year, 2021. So yeah. Wow. 
compared to all the other projects you've made, how difficult was this one? Okay, so it was very difficult during production in a lot of ways. There was a lot of turmoil going on during the shoot, but a lot of that we kind of had to deal with during the first week. It was the first time we ever had people quit. <gasps> ah. And that happened twice in the first week. So I'm like, oh, wow, this is totally due. This was crew members or cast? Just Two crew members. Okay. Two crew members. So it was a really interesting experience. Overall, I would say that every production is challenging. And then on this one, it was just kind of certain people weren't seeing eye to eye on certain things. And, you know, you do the best you can. To stay, you know, stay the course and steer the ship, and just certain egos were clashing. Some people thought that their jobs were more important than other jobs, and so there you go. So that became an issue. But besides that, it was a really smooth production. I have a wow. big a question. Oh, I'm just gonna say it. Okay, <laughs> do it. Do you, you've made sixteen features. Yeah. So Cold Feet was number fifteen as a writer, producer, an actor, and then number what was it? Number seven as a director or co-director. Okay. 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 Because I thought it was as a director because that's how. Okay. So Clinton, Clinton Cornwall pitched (laughs) pitched y'all to us and I was so glad that he did. And then he said it was your 16th feature and I presumed it was director. Okay. Seven is nothing to sniff at, though. <laughs> that is impressive. My question, you know, except for Ulrich. Ulrich is... Like, can we cut this short? I think gymnast. we're good now. Yeah, yeah. yeah we're good. Yeah. Let's move on. Fair enough. Can you, though, can you just... Is your life perfect? It sounds like the perfect life. Oh. Can you maybe dispel that or, or wow. reinforce the, the presumption? <laughs> no, this is great. No, I, I'm very happy. I'm a very positive and happy person. I love... I, I mean, like... <laughs> I'm about to sound so saccharine, but it's true. Like, my kids are, like, everything to me. And I love my wife. So on the home front, like, great to go. I got my productions going on. The struggle usually comes in with, um, you know, facilitating the productions and getting into the next one and trying to make it all sustainable. Yeah. And keep going from, you know, from shoot to shoot as much as possible. But, I mean, I there's no one else I'd rather be. I love my life, so... Yeah, and I'm always excited about the challenge of, of figuring out how to continue making it all sustainable and making it all work and juggling everything. Do you have a day job or is this how you're paying the bills through the films that you make? No, I do uh, various gigs, mostly as a writer. I do like some commercial treatments and every now and then I'll get commissioned to write a script. I do some editing gigs here and there and then revenue from the films. But I just kind of, you know, make it happen however I need to. But yeah, nothing regular. Okay, what's the model? What's the model? So let's go with the films that you've you're like the rights owner on. So how Uh, many are that? Is that 16? Because I also know acting is in there. So I'm trying to do the math. Yeah, do some acting too. Yeah. So, okay. I would say this too. Well, first of all, another asterisk next to the whole 16 record thing. (laughs) I started in high school and the first few, like they were technically feature films, but I wouldn't, you know, our our very first film was a remake of John Carpenter and Deborah Hill's Halloween. And it was, it was, it was pretty unsanctioned. Some might say unwanted, but we made it happen. <laughs> and so kind of the first few, like, you know, were all these experiences that like, I can't like go out into the world and, you know, do anything else with them outside of sharing them with people. Uh, we did actually just recently release one we made in 2005 called Act One. So that was kind of like, as far as my older movies go, the furthest back with anything that I have available right now. I'm sorry, what was the question? I just well, I'm, I'm trying to figure out the model because oh, yeah. th- there are people who get one feature, two feature off the ground through grassroots, through scrimping and saving, whatever it is. Yeah. But at a certain point, they kind of hit this wall, I think, where it's either they go to traditional financing or they make their budgets lower. I, I'm, I very rarely have talked to someone like you who has made it, been able to keep going for so right. many projects. 
Honestly, the model fluctuates. I'm still trying to figure out the model. I know that now. So, all right, I'll tell you this too. Before I had kids, I would max out all the credit cards in the world. <laughs> I basically keep applying for cards until they were like, you have to stop. We're not going to give you any like, decent cards anymore. So I'm like, fair <laughs> enough. I would max them out. I'd spend all of my money on the movies. When I came back from Cold Feet, I had $10, five in checking and checking and five in savings. And I had, I mean, tens of thousands of dollars of debt. Yeah. And I just started digging my way out of it. But since I had kids, I did one recently where I just made it very, very, just super, super low budget. So I wouldn't have to have a lot of overhead and I could make it work with my new uh, <laughs> financial situation and responsibilities. So I went from like a $75,000 budget for cold feet to then like a $1,500 budget wow. for baby come home, which is what I'm editing right now. So we yeah. did that one in four days. And so basically just trying to figure out ways like, okay, if I'm putting my own money into it, or my collaborators and I are putting our own money into it at this point, because now one of my main producing partners has a son as well. So, okay, let's keep those budgets super minimal, or we're also working on finding more outside investors, or we're going to look into WeFunder, which I actually learned about through your podcast here. Oh, yeah. We're going to look into that for our next production, maybe other modes of uh, crowdfunding. But yeah, so the model is shifting. We're still trying to figure it out, but we're going to, you know, make it happen. Have you ever raised money for any of your films or has it always just been like your own money and credit cards to get them done? Minimal amount. We did do an Indiegogo campaign for Cold Feet and we raised, it was like 5,000. So our, our goals on that are pretty, pretty modest. It's basically just to make a little extra to help, you know, cover certain costs. But uh, for the most part, our movies have been primarily funded by me and then sometimes another producing partner will come in as well with some of the financing. Mm -hmm. That's especially been the case over the last over the last few years. But at some point, my, okay, this is my my hypothesis. You tell me if I'm <laughs> way off. <laughs> so you did a few practice features, right? Really fun features with your friends. Sure. Yeah, remake yeah. that that's amazing. Then you made some kind of movie that provided some degree of revenue that you could roll over to the next feature. Is that accurate? Did you kind of create a little bit of a snowball where one project feeds into another? Or is it like every single time you're starting at zero? Honestly, I would say right now, every single time, almost starting at zero. The snowball is kind of like starting to happen a bit. And that's also why I'm adjusting our model too moving forward. It's okay. Either more outside financing instead of just a you know, litany of credit cards or just super, super low budget. Because one of the great things too is like, I, well, first of all, I love all kinds of movies, but I love also writing, you know, character driven films and dialogue driven films, small like chamber pieces, tight ensembles. So I know that I can write movies that I'm really compelled to make that won't require a lot of uh, financing up front to make happen. And while I'm making those, I also have some slightly bigger budget ones in the pipeline that we're looking for outside uh, financiers for. So, but honestly, like the revenue didn't really even start that much until I would say, three and a half years ago, when we first started getting money where I was like, oh, okay, like this is somewhat substantial and this can help, you know, <laughs> I kind of called it bonus money at the time because my whole thing was like, I'm going to make these movies regardless because I have to, like, I'm just, I have to make these movies. So any money that came in, I was like, oh, that's neat. And then, <laughs> but now again, since I have, you know, two young kids, it's gone from being like, the need has changed where it can't just be, that's neat anymore to like, you know, I got to figure out how to accumulate more again to make it all sustainable. But we didn't really, with the movie being awesome as we first started getting revenue that was somewhat substantial. 
And then from there, like, did you start partnering with the same distributor on your other movies? Or has it all been like every movie's a different distributor, a different you know, you know, process? Still figuring it out each time. With Cold Feet, we signed with the same distributor that we signed Bad Bad Men with, which was the previous movie I directed with Brad. And then Save Yourself and Being Awesome, it was the same. They're kind of like a distributor aggregator combo. And besides names, those names. two, what are their names? Oh, oh sorry, sorry. Their names? <laughs> <laughs> Forgot which, which show I'm on, the details. All right. Andy Wrights. Yeah. Andy Wrights ah. is the distributor of Cold Feet and Bad Bad Men, and they've been really good to us. And then uh, Ammo Content was Save Yourself and Being Awesome. And then we got lucky. We kind of did with our sales rep, his company, Oration Films, launched that ourselves through an aggregator. So basically, you know, self-distributed. Act One was from, oh God, I always mix up these names, Bayview Entertainment. That was the one from 2005 that we just released. Or are you going to mix it up with Shoreline? I just think there's always like right on the <laughs> precipice of water is my yeah. company name. <laughs> like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe, you know what? Maybe that's maybe that's the course of that. You know, have a solid plan just going from one uh, nautical, you know, you know <laughs> yeah. water, you know, based uh, title to another. I keep every time I say anchor, like I keep wanting to say anchor base. Yeah, I almost right. say Bayview, Anchor Bay. I don't know. Castle don't know. Rock. Yeah. yeah. Castle Rock. Yeah. <laughs> Castle Rock would be phenomenal. Yeah. <laughs> we all would love that. Yeah. Yeah. I feel a little bit like regretting you, but you seem to be okay with it. So I'm going to keep going. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. okay. So you're co-directing some of these, right? So yes. I'm also just trying to figure that out. And you act and you produce. So it's like, how do you yeah. know which one you're going to do on which project? Sure. No, that's a good question. Well, basically, um, so Bad Bad Men is a, is a comedy and Cold Feet is a horror comedy. And Brad and I have always really you know, been drawn to those kind of genre films. He's a big horror guy. I'm more of a comedy guy, but we each have love for both genres. So, and then the, the other films are the most recent ones, Being Awesome, We Got Lucky, Save Yourself, and Baby Come Home are like very, very stripped down, hyper-realistic dramas, comedy dramas. And so those, I just have that, I'm like, I want to do this one solo, basically. So it's pretty much every now and then I just come up with one that I feel like, oh, that's in, you know, my and Brad shared wheelhouse and I, I want to reunite with him. But in between those projects, I'm kind of doing usually something a little more super grounded. Mm. But I'm, you know, mixing it up there as well with some ideas for, for upcoming ones. So the money that you're seeing coming in from these films, is it all from like one film that's like the one that was successful? Or is it like a little bit from all the other movies, like kind of all coming into the, you know, over time? It's starting, so the first one uh, was being awesome. And then since then, like, and that's the one so far that has done the best, but then Save Yourself kind of came in. Did pre- and like, none of these are like, you know, astronomical figures by like any stretch of the imagination. It's just that again, for me, it's like, oh, this is more than like 200 bucks kind of thing. This is like a few thousand bucks. And then moving forward, like, so right now, you know, with the shifting Amazon, I don't even know what the Amazon oh. model is at this point. Oh. And that was like our main uh, breadwinner for the revenue. So I don't know, like cold feet just happened. So we'll see what's going on there. I've just been trying to do as much grassroots marketing as possible. Yeah, social media and reaching out to, to fans that we've accumulated with the past few films and just trying to, there's a lot of things we're looking into now, Patreon, whatnot, nice. different ways to generate more revenue from people that we know would be happy to pay for some amount for what we've, what we've done. As opposed to, you know, sometimes like I was glad that at least Cold Feet went up for, it was like five weeks on Amazon for either rental or purchase mm-hmm. before it became streaming. I was kind of hoping mm-hmm. for a little bit longer, but you know, at least from my experiences, I don't really have any say. And that's the indie rights model too. I think it's about a month of transaction yeah. before streaming, right? 
honestly, with I think with Bad Bad Men, but that was a few years ago. So I know their model shifted too. It basically went straight to streaming. Mm. Which the great thing with streaming though too is that it's I started hearing from a lot more people who you know I didn't know people who just from across the country who discovered one of my movies or several of our movies and reached out to me. And so I realized like oh, there's a lot more people out there who are giving our stuff a chance because they already are paying their subscription every month. So since they're not having to put any money down up front for it, go check it out. And so it kind of like helped us build, it's helping us build our fan base, which is phenomenal. But now it's kind of like, okay, and that's wonderful. And I want that to continue. But also, again, these fans who I know would be happy to pay a few bucks for one of our movies. Anyway, trying to figure out more ways to, yeah, to monetize and make more than just what we would from just simply streaming. So I'm trying to, as it often happens to me, I'm talking about the question instead of asking the question. My question is, trying to get into the hood a little bit because Ulrich and I talk a lot about like when you've made it and what's legitimate and like when do you feel satisfied with your career versus how you're how much weight you're putting in other people's opinions and I think a lot of people who aren't familiar with indie film would be like seven features that's that's insane like that's Mm -hmm. a career that's sometimes that's like Eric Romare's entire life but I don't know if that's true. He's probably made much more than that. That's a bad reference. But <laughs> what I'm trying to say is like, at a certain point, you decided just to do it on your own. Did you have expectations in the beginning of your career that people were going to come in and swoop you up? Or did you give up that ghost immediately? Like, can you talk a little bit about your emotional trajectory to just keep on going regardless of this level of support you have? Sure. It's a great question, as it turns out. No, I mean, okay, so I moved out to LA when I was 18. And I basically, you know, I, always, I knew that my whole life that I was a storyteller and that film was always like my chosen medium. I love acting, I love writing. And then pretty soon it became clear that directing made a lot of sense for me as well. I, so I just knew that, like, okay, I have to do it. Uh, I have to tell these stories. And I'm sure back then I did think like, oh, okay, maybe I can get signed with, you know, I had a few agents and whatnot on the acting front. And I go out for this, that, and the other, but nothing really, you know, caught fire in that regard. But I was like, that's fine. Like, I got a few gigs here and there, but mostly I just I want to keep making movies with my friends. And then those things will get, you know, people will see them. Again, like the kind of the years went by and I just, I just knew I had to keep doing what I was doing because mm. what's the alternative? Like, I'm a filmmaker. Like, this is just how it's going to be no matter what for the rest of my life. My perspective, I guess, has shifted in a lot of ways because, and again, now it's like, okay, I'm figuring out how to make it work with my obligations as, you know, as a father and wanting to do my best to provide. But also, like, my main focus there is being the best example I can be for my children. And I know that as much as they can see me engage with these projects that I'm so passionate about and that, you know, honor them in one way or another, I just know that's a good thing. Like, I know that there's nothing like that's just nothing but positive. So even the fact that like, I'm here talking to y'all right now, like, to me, it's just indicative of, cause you know, my buddy Clinton reached out and he reached, he, we saw each other's work at Dances with Films. We got in touch. We were both fans of each other's work and we became friends. And then he just kind of like took it, you know, on his own accord to reach out to y'all about, about me. So I, I don't know. I just, I, I might sound very, I, I'm, a, I'm a super optimistic person, very sunshiny. And so I don't, you know, I might sound a little naive, but that's just kind of how it is. Like, I'm going to keep making movies and I'm going to keep trying to refine my model to make it sustainable one way or another. I'm going to figure it out because I have to. So you don't seem to care at all about budget size. <laughs> like you just go from whatever you can get and whatever you need to make the movie. Like you just said, you went from whatever, yeah. $75,000 movie to a $1,500 feature. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So my question to you is, 
how do you make the $1,500 feature? Like, what is your approach there? And like, how, how is that structured? Okay, so that was the first one where we shot that in four days and we basically shot it over the course of two weekends. Not back-to-back weekends, but uh, with a week apart. And so basically, that was the one where like everyone worked for Deferred on that one, just because they wanted to, to jump on board this project. Everything else we'd done, except for our, our audio team, but everyone else worked for Deferred. Were they the $1,500? <laughs> pretty much. Just, I mean, pretty much. Yeah. Which, fair enough. <laughs> well, how'd you feed everybody? I mean, how does that work? Uh, that, I mean, that was where, you, where the chunk of the money went. And also, uh, okay. my buddy, we, so we shot at Matt Gilliam's parents' house, and they helped cook a bit. And we also just spent some of our money on, on that. So all the equipment came with, like, our, our DP. We had two DPs on this one, co-DPs. And the audio people that we hired brought their own gear. And a lot, yeah, it was just super, it was just very, uh, very nitty gritty. It's a four character piece. And yeah, I just kind of knew, again, like from having done all the movies before, I just kind of knew that like, I can make this happen. We shot a lot of it to camera, two camera setups. So we were able to, to fly pretty quickly through scenes. How many locations? Just one, just, just one, one location? There's just the one. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I kind of designed that, that whole project. I was kind of like, okay, it was kind of a challenge to myself. Like how quickly can I write this? How quickly can I go through pre-production? How quickly can I shoot it? And it was really cool because sometimes it'll take me, and for good reason, like years to write a script. Sometimes I'll like, you know, I'll have an idea and I'll, I'll be working on it for a while. Then I have to set it aside for a variety of reasons, then come back to it. And uh, with this one, I just kind of knew, like, I want to like, see what happens if I basically give myself two weeks from inception of the idea to writing the script. And I loved it. And I felt really happy because it, it cut out any second guessing and it kind of forced everything that was, that was really on my mind at the time to just come to the forefront. So it was a really cool, for me, like challenge. So as far as the budgets go, like, so I'll just, the last few real quickly, it's been three $75,000 movies, that $1,500 movie, a $14,000 movie, a $21,000 movie. And then before all of those we did, the highest budget we did was 200,000 for Daylight Fades. Wow. So that's well, been the range for the last few years. What? Okay, so sorry, I, <laughs> I, I don't want to monopolize. You no, I, I'm with you. What's the pitch? Like when you go to an actor or you go to a DP and you're already like, come on, let's do it. Come on, come on. Like, do you just say that, come on a lot? Like, what do you, what do you, how do you convince? Who have you been you talking to and how do you know my, my secrets? <laughs> no. Well, in terms of like being able to get them to come on board for yeah. like, yeah. well, again, so and even with the, the movies that were like $75,000 or more, you know, the rates were still relatively minimal as far as like industry standards go, but it was still like a decent, like daily weight, like, enough money that they would be okay with doing it. And for the $1,500 one where they were t- for deferred, like these were good friends of mine. So who I'd worked with before as well. And so again, they just wanted to, you know, come on board and, and have that experience. Cause that was a situation where since everyone knew it's like, okay, everyone again, but <laughs> the audio team, God bless them was working for deferred. Everyone felt kind of united in that. And it's like, all right, cool. We're doing this for the sheer love of doing it. It's gonna be four days. Like, cool. So the best you just can. ask, you just say, I just you know, ask, I have right. nothing, but I want you to do this. And I mean, yeah, that's, that's flattering too, that right? That's I mean, essentially how that went. Yeah. Again, on the past films, we just kind of, you know, with each movie too, I budget out. I kind of do at least three tiers of budgets, at least three. There's the high end, which we, <laughs> we, haven't, uh, we haven't gotten there yet. The mid range and then the, like, the absolute lowest so that we know no matter what, if we can get at least this amount of money, we can make it happen. And plus for me too, like doing those different tiers is really illuminating and really, because it forces you to really think through like, okay, what do we absolutely need? Yeah. To really think it all through. So. 
yeah, with those budgets in mind and kind of like knowing. So in the past, when I pitched to to crew members and cast members, like, I, okay, I usually lead with whatever the figures are in the lowest tier budget. So that way, you know, I'm setting the expectations there. So if we <laughs> happen to somehow come across money to attain the mid or the high, you know, then it'll be a happy surprise. Cool. So do you- but Come on, basically, come on, come on. Sorry. Yeah, that's, that's when, when you made your movie for $200,000, yeah. do you feel like you had- like a better experience with that higher budget? Was it easier in ways to make a no. movie with more money or was it like more freeing when you got down to lower budgets? So on that one, I'll say this too. So the $200,000 one was by far our longest shoot. It was 38 days. Oh, wow. Wow. <laughs> Which is, I, I know it's to me, even like, and I know, again, by a lot of standards, 38 days isn't a lot, but for, for me, I'm guessing, you know, for you for guys, us, like, yeah. 38 days is, is for a us, lot. That's like, that's like an eternity. That's, that's yeah. two movies, two or three movies, yeah, two, probably. Two, yeah, two Because yeah. <laughs> again, my six movies I made since then were what, four days, seven days, five <laughs> days, and then two 16 days and an 18 day. So 38 days. Yeah. Like you said, it's like an eternity. It was just a lot more. It was a great experience. We learned a lot from it. But again, I think I, I learned a lot from that. One of which was that I didn't want to do another two hundred thousand dollar movie. I wanted to do one more seventy five or less or higher hmm. with certain like name actors or whatnot attached. Because two hundred thousand dollars, at least for us, was kind of in a weird middle, not no man's land, but kind of this middle place where I don't. It was too much money probably to spend on it in retrospect. Hmm. But I'm glad we did. I wouldn't change a thing. It's just I'm like, oh, okay, moving forward, let's keep it under a hundred grand or you know, with these higher budgets in place, like get outside, more outside financing for those. Cause we were able to get outside financing, fortunately for the $200,000 one, fortunately, or yeah, something more in a different SAG scale as it were. And yeah, getting some sort of uh, name talent involved too. So that'll probably be my last $200,000 movie. So you have all this knowledge from making all these movies. Do you market yourself? Like, do I mean, I would say I know a lot of women in your position who consults on other people's features and help them get movies off the ground. Like, do you have a career also doing that or, and do you market yourself? Do you have a newsletter? Do you go on social media? Like, what do you do to amplify your own profile? So yeah, marketing always, and I feel like we're making, I'm making more strides with that as I go, because it's always been like, I would say my weakest area in certain ways, just because like, especially making all those movies, it seemed like the marketing would sometimes fall through the cracks a little bit, but I'm trying to make much more of a concerted effort with that now. Mm. I am good about yeah, going on social media, about posting, but especially about responding to people who re- reached out to me and keeping a list of all of them. I basically have like, I have a doc where I list out all the... Because the other thing too, what sometimes make my head spin is that I have, and I'm trying to streamline this too, because I have so many different... For a while, I was doing a different account for each movie. Yeah. And... At a certain point, it's like, okay, I'm now trying to post on, like, I have a Being Awesome account across Facebook, <laughs> Twitter, Instagram. And then we got lucky. And the same thing, it's just like, it got crazy. So now I'm trying to focus much more on, like, the Alan C. Gardner, Alan C. Gardner movie stuff and, you know, funneling everything through there. But yeah, so I have this list of, like, okay, this is where this person reached out to me, whether it's LinkedIn or Twitter or email or whatever. And then whenever I have a new movie coming out now, I reach out to them. And you know, some of these people have become friends of mine now. Alan, get MailChimp. Import those. Send one email, Alan. <laughs> You'll I have said, more time to make movies. Yeah, you're right. But you know, the personal touch too. The personal touch of these, the correspondences I like. But you're right though. I should, I need to look more into MailChimp. I gotta I got go. I gotta go do that right now. 
something about the one-on-one connection that's that that's, is nice you know and i i've done that for like all my crowdfunding campaigns and stuff it's just like re- reaching out to people directly on facebook you know who i know or email or whatever no it's very sweet it's very sweet i'm just (laughs) thinking about like the amount of work you're doing on a one-on-one basis (laughs) yeah yeah no and i just like and i love like i mean the whole thing is you know when i really like dig way back like what got me into storytelling in the first place besides i just naturally drawn towards it was you know i like to connect the need to connect with people like so that's in my day-to-day life and through my stories and then so when i'm hearing from people who respond to my work it's nice to be able to foster that connection there but MailChimp, though, at the same time. So I've got to ask about saying that you dropped, like, right in the beginning of the conversation, you talked about, like, some crew difficulties on your film where people oh, had yeah. quits. Right. Oh, my gosh. Of course. Thank you. Can you just talk about that? Like, how that ended up happening and what, what you did to solve it? Have I gotten too candid? No, it's okay. <laughs> well, I won't say who they were, so, so it's okay. So basically, all the people whose names are in the credits, I'm not talking about any of those. People, so no one has to speculate about like, is it this person or this person? If their name isn't still in the credits, it was not one of those people. <laughs> so the first one was a really good lesson in, oh, no matter how often I tell someone, please let me know if there are any issues. Because I always try to make sure I let everyone know, like all the team, like, if there's any issues, please come to me if you have any stress about anything. If it's, you know, if you need to like take a little off your plate, whatever, like, let's, you know. Yeah. I'm trying to help you know, facilitate everything. So I don't want anyone to feel overburdened if we've given you too much to take care of, right? Or like how often I check in with certain people, like, are you doing okay? Like, how are you feeling? Like, blah, blah, blah. Because I mean, I'm going to keep doing all these things. But what I've realized is that some people will not take you up on any of that. Very, very rarely. And again, this was like really the first time where it happened at this level where this individual bottled up everything and then one night just like exploded. And I'm like, oh, so every time he told me everything was fine, and, you know, every time I extended the offer, like, you know, come to me, like, with any kind of issues, like, he was just kind of nodded and pushed through and, and sucked it all up until one night he couldn't take it anymore. Hmm. It's in a late night email, just kind of lambasting the whole <laughs> production. And then he was out. And that was the end of day two. I wrote him back and I tried to be, you know, very as thoughtful as possible. And, like, you know, understand that this person is obviously going through some sort of something else is going on in their lives. At least that was my assumption. It proved to be correct. And so, you know, I tried to, you know, get reminded, like, moving forward, like, when someone asks you to... Honestly, the most important thing with me on any production is creating a positive environment. I want everyone to enjoy coming to work. I want everyone at the end of it to want to work together again. To me, that's, you know, that's just what's... That's what's most important. So it kind of blew my mind to realize that, like, this person was kind of silently suffering, no matter how much I was trying to... Yeah, given the platform upon which he could vent or ask for more help. And then he was very he was very receptive to my email about that. And he apologized, and it's all good. Like you know, we move forward. Well, what were some of the things that he was complaining about? Was it just workload or yeah, workload, lack of resources, not enough resources. Oh, so uh, all the standard things that we all deal with. Yeah, yeah, and again, I think he just like it's just everyone's got you know stuff going on outside of of our of our productions, and sometimes it's something kind of negative going on, or it's just someone can't handle the stress of their day to day life anymore, and then the stress at work compounds that, and some people will just snap sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. So. What about the second person? <laughs> I gotta, I, no, 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 no. These, no. Are, these are good lessons for people. No, no, no. Stuff. She was a person who I would say thought her job was more important than, than other people's jobs. It turned out too that she and the first guy were kind of had been venting to each other and feeding off of uh, each other's. I see. And she, so then she quit on day four. So we're like, all right, this is new. 
Well, you got everyone out of there. You got the toxic out. So, exactly. so how did you exactly. fill the positions? You just reached out to people you know and they flew in and saved the day or? No, we just kind of, you know, as we tend to do on, at least my team and I like on our indie productions, like the role of producer can be very, <laughs> it was very stretched out. So basically we all kind of like took on the tasks ourselves or like had a couple, we had a few PAs who did a wonderful job. They helped out a bit as well. I think we got one, a, one new PA to help fill the void. Yeah, we just kind of absorbed those duties. Amazing. Assign them elsewhere. Yeah. Well, I want to ask about optimism because it's so confusing to me. I don't understand <laughs> optimism. <laughs> I've heard the podcast. <laughs> like, I'm, just I'm like, well aware. You mean you just pl- keep on plugging no matter what and you just hope for the best? Where does that come from, Ellen? Like, where the, like, is it just you love filmmaking that much or, or like you did you just have really happy parents like we we're <laughs> <laughs> no i think it's a, a you're not jewish thing. is what i am getting <laughs> from this conversation i'm not i'm not i'm not okay. just by ha- happenstance i think it's a few things i mean uh, look everything not to get into a whole overriding philosophical conversation but everything comes down to perspective and i guess from a really early age like i knew i was a very emotional very sensitive kid and I never really felt like I belonged anywhere. And then I really love storytelling. And I just wanted to like, again, like connect with people through conversations, but also through my work and teaming up with people. And I just kind of, I don't know, the more that I wrote and the more that I sorted through my feelings that way, it helped and it continued to help. Mm-hmm. And it just kind of has bettered every aspect of my life. And so it's such an inextricable part of who I am being a storyteller. And again, film has been the chosen medium overall. I love doing theater as well. But yeah, I just, I, it just comes down to like, I have to do, I, I did have very, I have very wonderful and supportive fans. <laughs> so it's always a good thing. Yeah, I think it's just a, a, a choice that I gradually made to like not let myself get beat down by others or my own insecurities. And these are like conversations I had with myself when I was like seven. And it continued. <laughs> I'm still there. I'm at, that's my arrested development is right well, age seven gotcha. for Alex. It's a, it's a very gradual and like, you know, it's, yeah, it's a very gradual process, but it came down to like, I just, I can't. And also I won't back down by Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers is one yes. of my favorite songs. Yes. And I've cranked that many times when I felt a little, it's that's, I, I, I get down about these things a lot. And so like, you know, I just have to work through it. And sometimes in those times too, I'll get words of reassurance, like from someone out of the blue. Or from, you know, a loved one. It's, yeah, I just, I have to keep doing it. So it's a choice, this optimism. It's a hard-earned choice. So, like, what's what's the plan, like, going forward? It sounds like you're just going to keep on making movie after movie after movie after movie, and you're never, ever going to stop. But, like, do you ever think about trying to get representation? Yes. Trying to, like, upgrade to another level of productions? Like, and, and do you have a strategy to do those things? Another excellent question. This is why I'm a listener. <laughs> so moving forward, like, I'm going to keep making movies. But I'm also trying to, the way that I'm making them, essentially, with my friends, basically, with varying budgets. But I also do want to diversify. I'm, I'm trying to find representation. So I'm writing a few things right now, one of which is I'm writing a book for the first time. I just wrote a new play that I'm going to do as a play and then a movie after running a couple of new scripts and I'm working on like a mini series idea. So I'm kind of trying to have different things too, because I've never really gone out there in the industry world. Well, not that much, at least like trying to find reps and trying to, you know, show my wares that way. And I want to see how, you know, explore those options as well. And again, like just facilitating things for my family and then also for the productions like moving forward. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm trying to yeah, diversify and uh, to keep it all sustainable with the, my own projects. Can you talk about that, the family thing? I mean, I think before I had my kid, I had like a big 
freak out where I was like, I'm going to lose my identity as an artist and what's going to happen to me? And I know all Rick talked about his fears or his, the question marks in front of him before having his child. And sure. Were you worried? Uh, you probably weren't. But can you talk a little bit about how that it changed things? And you talked about the budget, but I'll just let you talk. Yeah. No, I mean, I'll say this too. Like, I realized, like, as soon as I knew that I was going to be a father, <laughs> I was just so incredibly happy. Like, I realized that that's the most important. That's the, I'd always wanted to be that, but you can't really plan for, I mean, to only a certain degree can you plan for that. Yeah. And so I felt very fortunate to, to meet, you know, my wife and to fall in love. I'm like, this is the woman. And then we were able to, you know, before we knew it, we had our first son on the way and then our second. And so again, it just came down to like, there, I mean, there's, there's always stresses and worries that I'm dealing with this way or that, but I just knew that I had to make it work. Breaker Breaker is the new play that I wrote. And it, again, I write through these things. Like it deals with a lot of that. Like it's two main characters. They're both musicians and one of them completely left behind his music to focus on being a father. He felt like that was a responsible thing to do. But there was kind of um, a bit of a fallout from that because he wasn't staying true to, to who he is. And then um, another, the other guy, their best friends who went all in on the music front and felt like he was missing out on some other aspects of life. So those two characters were having, you know, their conversations with each other in a lot of ways and other characters in the play too, was my way of working through my insecurities and fears and reassuring myself and, you know, reaffirming the fact that like, okay, I'm on my path. Like, again, I just, I, I've got to make this work. I can be flexible with the budgets. I can do whatever I have to do to keep being a storyteller. But like, if I deny that part of myself, my kids will feel that and it'll be toxic for them. I'm mean, like, again, that's, that's no good. It goes back to like, talking about earlier, as far as like, what I'm doing is that no, I know it's ultimately nothing but positive because these are stories that I have to tell. So there's always fears, but you just, yeah, I just, I got to keep working, working through them. So this is like a huge question that Liz and I have been arguing and discussing <laughs> over many, many episodes oh offline and online. Okay. Okay. And this whole idea of like, how do you level up and like getting to this other stage in your career? And like, there's part of the theory is that if you're making certain budget films, that you're sticking yourself into this kind of low budget area. And then like, you're never going to direct a Marvel movie. You're never going to direct like a studio feature or any of that stuff. So yeah. I'm just wondering, like, Obviously, I know your opinion on it because, like, uh, based off your track record. But, like, what do you say to that? Like, what, what are you, what are you, how do you process that line of thinking, I suppose? As far as, like, if you, you, could, you could wind up just being stuck making more money. Yeah, exactly. Like, like, do you feel like having made whatever? Yeah. Like, and is that a curse? $5,000 yeah. features, like, are you cursed by that budget level? Or do you see the light of, like, going up to, like, a million, two million? whatever level yeah honestly i guess i just don't give a shit when it comes to like the next like tier but like at this point no and i get it because like i get it, a lot of it like you there's conversations you know are happening with you know a lot and I, I totally understand but i guess like the older i've gotten the more i just know that i'm gonna <laughs> okay it would be really it'd be fun to direct something out you know in a different strata of budget and i'm sure i'll get there at some point but i guess i'm not that concerned about it I just know that, like, again, if I'm stuck, stuck, but you know, if I remain making movies of this budget level for the rest of my life, I'm fine with that. Like, if I'm, because if there's story, because the only reason they get made is because, again, they're stories that I have to tell and I bring them to the life of people that I love. So, by virtue of those two things, like, if that is my destiny, then that's pretty cool. Like, and I'm happy with that. And again, if I can, you know, I get, I'll figure out a way to make it sustainable and to be able to make, 
some kind of living from it and to support my family, to help support my family. And if things happen to like level up in a certain regard, if that is a result of me kind of staying true to myself and my convictions, then that's cool. But I guess, yeah. Does that answer your question? It pretty much does. Like, you know, the, the whole thing is just this debate. It's like, oh, is it better to like apply to all the programs and like, oh, yeah, 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 this, yeah, like yeah. Sundance, like, you know, writers. Sure, whatever, sure. Bullshit. And then is that yeah. better than like, oh, just going out and making your low budget film and like just, you know, oh, doing it yourself and making it happen. And like, I'm kind of more in the line of like, just go make your fucking movie. I'm with that. That's what's more important. Yeah. I don't think like applying to a grant like every year for yeah. five years and then finally getting to the grant after the fifth time. Like, I just don't think that's like, I don't know. That just doesn't seem attractive to me. But like some people do that and yeah. maybe they're better I, off I, for it because they make a $5 million feature. Sure, again, sure. Rather than a, you know, sure. a $100,000 feature. And again, it's all perspective. It's all like what you want out of life. And I got to be a storyteller too. Like we all, we have to realize that like, there's so much going on with comparing ourselves to others and how, you know, obviously that can become a very toxic whirlwind. But the more you focus on like, oh, wait, what do I actually want? Like, what are my priorities as a person, as a storyteller? Like, what do I actually want to achieve? And then you can like, from that mindset, you can really zero in on the things that matter and the things you do give a shit about. And I guess I've just realized like, for me, like looking back on, you know, year, maybe years ago, I don't know, there's a lot of stuff I've like, any kind of things that ego related, I've kind of let go of a lot of ego shit, basically. And now I'm just as much as possible at least. And like, I feel like I keep shedding that the more the years go by and the more I just hyper-focus on why I'm doing what I'm doing in the first place and why I'm telling these stories and just sticking to that. And now that being said, of course, like, like I said, I'm trying to diversify and get representation and exploring like maybe some TV, but also those are things that I, I'm really interested in too. And all, all the stories that I'm going to like to put out there looking for representation and the mini series I'm working on, I'm like, these are also stories that really fire me up and are indicative of who I am as a storyteller and what I have to say. So again, there's not, that's all positive right there too. So I guess it comes down to like, I just have to keep staying true to me and my voice. And then, you know, trying to make some smart business decisions there for the sake of my family. But as far as like being a filmmaker goes, like, again, I know that no matter what, I will keep telling my stories and that I'll, you know, if it's all $75,000 around there or less movies for the rest of my life, I'm fine with that as long as I can, you know, make it work with uh, my other obligations with my family. I think we have to move to final five, but I just wanted to say, like, I, I don't know if my looks are, I'm worried that they, sometimes I look condescending and I don't mean to be. <laughs> I'm, I'm in awe of you, Alan. Like, I'm like, oh. I'm like, I wish I could have your attitude. And it's like, you must have no ulcers. You must have, like, <laughs> Like, no. it just looks like a, it seems wonderful way to traffic uh, your life. I appreciate that. I, again, it's a bit like, I, I, this is, this is very much like, this is who I am. This is how I feel. But I, uh, yeah, there are like, there are moments of absolute stress, but like they've become fewer and farther between like as the years go by. Cause again, the more I know I'm saying to myself on my path, then the less I freak out basically. Mm -hmm. So yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Well, on that note. <laughs> What's the first film you ever made? Maybe it's Halloween, maybe it's not. And how do you feel about it now? I would say, okay, so first feature, I would say it would be Halloween. And I feel very accomplished. Uh, <laughs> no, it was a lot of fun. I mean, I played Loomis and Michael Myers. So obviously I feel... Because <laughs> just... you just put the mask on and off, right? Exactly. Just... <laughs> he only shares one scene, uh, you know, those two characters. And uh, we had a stunt double for that scene. So yeah, I feel wonderful. 
<laughs> uh, what's the best filmmaking advice you've ever received? Oh man, you know what sucks is that I feel like I've been on the receiving end of so much bad advice from people like over the years. Maybe that's just the stuff that has stuck out the most because it's bugged me the most. But I discarded all that advice. I would say, and I didn't get this advice personally, but when I was 15, like when Scream had just come out, and my buddy Brad told me that Kevin Williamson wrote with an index card on his computer that said, what do you want to see? And I just kind of always have stayed stuck with that. It's like, what do I, what, what do I want to see? Like, what am I trying to, to put out there? So, mm-hmm. yes, that. Ulrich asking for permission to include what's the worst filmmaking advice in all future interviews. Yeah, what do you think? Can you share some bad advice, too, <laughs> while we're at it? Well, I guess for someone like me, and this is always from people who didn't actually know me. It would just be people I'd run into wherever, at a bar, out somewhere tell me that you have to pick one thing to do, like whether it's writing, acting, directing, what have you. And I just, that always rubbed me the wrong way. And I felt like, again, these were all people I'm like, oh, this person's kind of bitter, or they're just a little bit overbearing. They're basically, they're not happy with how things quote unquote turned out for them. So they're trying to, you know, course correct things for me. And I just, I don't, I don't have time for that. Try to force your viewpoint on someone else. Yeah, certain advice that's more like a warning than anything. Right, because there's there's no established path, so why why are they pushing yeah. you anyway? Yeah, especially if it's unsolicited. It's like, uh, okay. <laughs> Do you have a goal as a filmmaker? To continue to tell s- stories that I have a lot of conviction about with people I love, and as I said earlier, to be the best example I can be for my kids. If you could go back in time, what's the one piece of advice you would give yourself? I would say don't worry so much about other people's scale of success, know your own worth, and that you have something to give. And finally, is making movies hard? Yes, but it is a glorious struggle. And uh, I love the challenge. Hard is, hard is good in a lot of ways. Yeah, hard is good. It's he did it. To end on. Yeah. Hard is good. <laughs> hard is, hard good. is good. How can people support you? Send, send them to oh. your MailChimp widget right now. <laughs> So, okay, Cold Feet is currently available on Amazon Prime, Google Play, and YouTube. And my other movies are on several platforms, Being Awesome and Save Yourself on Tubi. We Got Lucky and Bad Bad Man on Amazon. You can follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Vimeo (laughs) at Alan C. Gardner and on Instagram at Alan C. Gardner Movies. Liz, what did you remember from our chat with Alan? I said it in the show. I said it in the interview. I think I've talked about it since. I'm just amazed by how upbeat and positive this man is. I was very much inspired by his attitude. It would be nice to float through life like Alan C. Gardner. I was pretty (laughs) jealous of him throughout that whole chat. And I think he is lovely. So I had a great time. What did you feel? Yeah, it's rare that I meet someone who's more optimistic than I am because I'm (laughs) usually a pretty optimistic person. But Alan really blew me out of the water. Basically, no matter what we asked him and no matter how we phrase a question, We couldn't actually get him to say that he regretted anything that he'd ever did or that anything was a bad decision, that he was happy with the way everything had worked out. And he was like really excited to be like making all the movies he was making. And when we talked about like he's he's making a $1,500 feature right now, we were talking about like the reality of that. It was just nothing but like positivity and love for like the way that he made that movie and and what he's making from it, you know. And it's like, oh, it doesn't matter. I didn't have any money to make it. It's I love. I'm doing the thing I love to do. It's amazing. And I'm like, holy shit, that is a filmmaker, right? They make the film no matter what. Yeah, I think that's that's true. Yeah, I I just don't really like. It's so interesting with Alan because it's like his career doesn't like follow any kind of graph or chart or anything. It's like he started making the biggest budget movie he'd ever been in that he starred in. 
And then he like kind of went down budgets purposefully is what it sounds like. And now, you know, he's kind of in this, this zone, but like, yeah, he made like a $70,000 feature. Now he's making a $1,500 feature. And it's like, when you ask him, like, what's the next, you can, it's like, doesn't matter. Like it could be a $5 feature if he could figure out how to make a feature for $5. Like he doesn't care about that stuff, which is so interesting. She talked to other filmmakers and they're like, oh no, I made like a $700,000 feature for my first feature. I'm going to go 1 million plus next and I'm not going to go down under 700 or back to seven. It needs to be up, up, up. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I feel like those people make a lot less movies than the Alan C. Gardner's of the world. Yeah. Which is totally true. But is that yeah. better or worse? We don't know. You know? Yeah, I don't know. I found myself questioning his strategy. But what he kept saying over and over again was that he was making the movie because he had to make it. And I couldn't question that. And I also think oh, what was interesting about him is you said that he's so positive and he didn't crack, but it didn't feel like an act. It didn't feel like denial. It felt like his genuine character was that like blissful state of he's going after what he wants to do with his life. So yeah. maybe that's the goal. Like we keep talking about leveling up and kind of achieving certain landmarks in our career, but it's like maybe it's just like getting to Alan C. Gardner's emotional state on a daily basis. That should be the goal. He said something that I've said before where it's like, well, he'll just, he's going to make movies for the rest of his life because that's just what he has to do. And it's like, I kind of feel like no matter what happens with me, like I'll always be making a movie, whether or not I end up getting paid to do it, or if it's just something that I always do on the side, you know, backyard filmmaking. Thank you, Jen McGowan. But (laughs) yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's just going to happen no matter what. And I think for me, I don't want to just write a story that I could shoot in my house, right? Like, right. you know, unless that story happens to be something that I think is like completely amazing and like blow me and other people away, then sure. But like, I think for me, it's like, I'm, I'm interested in science fiction. I'm interested in horror, you know? And so those things, like they just require like more time and more resources and, you know, more money really, you know, to get them done right. And so you can't really make an amazing, mind-blowing horror film for $1,500 or science fiction film. You could. You know? you, I mean, I bet, Alric, you would take the Alan C. Gardner approach if you found like a VFX house that would do a labor swap with you. You know what I mean? It's like, right. I think it's the attitude, not necessarily the resources, because you could find the resources well, somehow. I think you I don't could. know. I mean, I just, because like, like he shot it in four days, you know, and that's how he was able to feed people within that budget. You can't shoot like a, an amazing, you know, horror movie in four days. I just don't think you can. Am I the optimist in this conversation? Maybe, maybe what a short, happened? but not a feature. Did Who's, Alan how? pervade my character? What, <laughs> what Are is? you seriously going to sit there and tell me, Liz, that you think you can shoot an engaging hour and a half horror film with awesome kills and gore in four days? Well, that's tough. The special effects makeup is going to be really difficult, right? I mean, you can spend four days on a kill if you you want to do it right. (laughs) But if you have a bloodless horror film, yeah. Yeah. You could be done. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Maybe a bloodless horror film, you know, sure. Psychological (laughs) horror, maybe. I don't know. I guess it's not impossible. It's just like, it's not, if you you want to have effects and and gore be a part of your thing, then it makes it a lot harder, you know? But anyways, I mean, I think the bottom line is that Alan's amazing. I was completely blown away by the conversation. I didn't expect it to be as good as it was for whatever reason. I just wasn't, didn't have that high hopes. I was like, oh, this will be interesting. But like, it was really, I think, very informative and I hope people got a lot out of it. Yeah. This week, we also want to talk about an article from USA Today. That was my very clean transition to our news part of the show. 
The subject is The Pandemic Fueled More Diversity in the Film Industry in 2020. Will That Progress Continue by David Oliver? And yeah, Arik, do you, what were your thoughts on this article? I think this pandemic has nothing to do with this. This is bullshit. That's what I have to say. <laughs> were you going to say that to every news article? This is bullshit. I don't know. I just think like, you know, because they have like the picture of Isaiah Washington on the front, right? right. There's a Washington kid. There's no world where Christopher Nolan cast him in that movie in any way related to the pandemic. It has nothing to do with it. So I don't understand why would they would put that together. It's just stupid. I mean, the other point that they're making, I think, where they're talking about like, oh, these are smaller movies getting made and getting, you know, seen, you know, in streaming or whatever. But I mean, I don't know. It also kind of hurts my brain because they say themselves that this diversity report only covers theatrical usually and they they open it up to streaming because of the pandemic mm -hmm. and it's like oh and then we found all this like you know these movies are being made blah 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 because of the pandemic or whatever it's like well how would you thought that they were already being made but they weren't <laughs> being included because you didn't include streaming right in your report from well, previous I mean, years <laughs> yeah what the fuck <laughs> this is yeah stupid. i don't know anyways maybe i'm being too negative but what do you think liz you know i have when i talk about diversity in art, I like to talk about diversity from millions of different perspectives, not just racial diversity, but age diversity, gender diversity, sexual diversity. And I think the line I always like to bring up is artists support organizations like to support the usual suspects when it comes to diversity. Like we would be looking for projects to support or we would be looking at, you know, grantees and they would be supported by Austin Film Society. And at the time, Tribeca Film Institute, they'd be supported by multiple different agencies at the same time. So I'm just, I think the key to diversity is not just like pulling in different actors and directors of different backgrounds, but it's funding individuals who need support <laughs> rather than like sure things that reflect positively back on the organization or the studio or the platform. And anyway, so my whole complaint about this is at the core, we should be focusing on casting agencies and financiers, supporting new perspectives. And then the platforms themselves aren't really as much of a gatekeeper as the ones that are actually allowing the project to be greenlit to begin with. So whatever, we could focus on distribution, but I'd rather focus on diversity and development and funding. Right. I mean, one of the things they say in here is that like they're starting to see more of these movies being bought and sold or whatever and doing more at the box office, which, I mean, I think that's cool. But I mean, all their references are, you know, big budget movies Always. that, you Always. know, my hypothesis is that, you know, low budget filmmakers have been making movies with diverse backgrounds, diverse casts made by, by, by diverse people. They're just not really being seen, mm -hmm. you know, and they're not really getting out into the world and not being promoted and they're not being picked up and they're not being bought, you know, by the bigger companies. They're being bought by smaller companies. Well, just the straight distribution deals. <laughs> right. But anyways, I don't know. I think it's like, if it's really true, I think it's a good thing. Yeah. I don't know if it's actually true. Yeah. And I think like if Denzel Washington's son is getting into more movies and like that's being part of this <laughs> inclusion <laughs> acceleration. I think that's total bullshit because, of course, Denzel Washington's son is in the beginning roles. I mean, you know, he also happens to be a decent actor. But yeah, that's not the only reason why he's 
in the big Spike Lee movie or in the big Christopher Nolan movie. Nepotism cuddle party. That's going to be, I'm going to like trademark this phrase because it's just, it is the source of all progress in this industry. Anyways, I I don't think I hated this article as much as I made it sound (laughs) like I do, but I just think it's pretty silly because, you know, you know, all these stats are coming from including something they didn't include before. So I guess I'm more curious to see what the next one says when they include streaming again and, you know, see if there's any change in these numbers between, you know, now and 2022. I agree. So, Liz, I wanted to talk to you about this last week, but then we got sidetracked because you had a better question to ask me. <laughs> now, I've been thinking a lot about like moments on set where I've been faced with like a really tough challenge and like wasn't even sure if this movie was going to happen or if things were going to work out. And it was like, what am I going to fucking do? But somehow we as a team figured it out. So, just wanted to know, like, do you have any moment like that that you can talk about? Like any like really tough point in any project, whether it's a short feature whatever that like you had to pivot and then you like were able to make the movie i'm like a few things are coming to mind but i'd rather actually hear from you first so i can hear what exactly you mean okay well there's a i wrote down a few so does it matter if i'm a producer or director in any of these that's your question i don't care you're still like you're the creative figurehead either way yeah okay well there's these they're all good but i think i'll talk about the one that was that actually happened on set and not the day before and so it was like a literally like you know 9 a.m call time like holy shit moment like this is fucked basically so on my first short film strange thing on day three we had to have a different dp because jason who shot that short with very first short film also shot the alternate he was unavailable. He could only do two of the three days. And so we had another guy, Michael Apple, who I used to work with at Studio B Films, come in to, to fill in. Mm-hmm. Apparently, it was like a miscommunication between me and him or something where I said, like, it's a hold, but I didn't book him or whatever. And so he just didn't show up <gasps> at his call time, even though I believe we sent him a call sheet. But again, there was just some sort of, I don't know, confusion on there. I don't exactly know what happened. But he just wasn't there. And then luckily he was available. So he's like, I think I could get there by like 1 p.m. But we had all these shots to do like between then. So it was like, well, what do we do in this situation? So by all luck of hand, my first AC, Satsuki, is also a cinematographer. And so he basically just stepped up and took the DP role and just rolled with it. And I took the shot. I had a shot list. I gave him the shot list. And we went in and we just did the schedule just as it was planned. We didn't flip anything around. We just went for it. And he shot like the final shot in the movie with like this really cool, like sort of practical goo effect thing that we did. And, you know, he kind of found something in the moment that wasn't in, you know, scripted or whatever, wasn't in my shot list. And it ended up being beautiful and like one of my favorite shots. So like, I don't know what I would have done if the, if the AC wasn't willing to step up or didn't have that kind of confidence. But I just was really lucky that my AC w- was ready to, to do that and excited to like jump right on our Fisher dolly that we had in my tiny apartment and do the shot. That's very wonderful. That's, that sounds like way more. I was thinking you were going to talk about like a breakdown and you never recovered, like the phrase tough moment. I'm thinking only negative ramifications, but this sounds like <laughs> only a great story. I did think of one that I've never talked about. I've kind of kept it a secret for a long time. Wow. I produced a USC thesis when I was at USC film school. I won't say the name of this person because they're a semi-Twitter celebrity. 
I forgot to pick up the sound kit the day before. That was on me. I like was ready to pick it up, contacted the sound department at USC, and it wasn't ready yet. So I like earmarked later on the day. I said, I'll pick it up. And I just forgot. Everyone gets a set and we're like, where's the sound kit? And it clicked that I never picked it up. So I found a way to break into the USC sound department and take the sound kit that we had reserved that was sitting there reserved for us. And I didn't just like go in, pick the locks and like take a sound kit. I found someone who had a key to the sound department door who worked for the sound department. I called and like there was supposed to be someone on call all weekend who was not answering their phone. So I left just like all of these messages recording like the progress of what I was doing so that I was held accountable for all of the things I was doing. But my perspective was the sound kit's there. We have it reserved. It's my fault. I'm going to make it right. Anyway, got the sound kit. I brought it back to set. And then I was called in front of the disciplinary committee at USC (laughs) and was given a long talking to. And I cried in front of like every single (laughs) film school faculty member and they (laughs) could tell that I was suffering enough and nothing was ever made of it. They didn't tell anyone. I never told anyone. I told the director of this thesis. And for me, I was always really ashamed. But say talking about it now, I'm like, oh, well, you know, that's kind of cool. (laughs) You're a problem solver. You you made it happen. I mean, I really shouldn't have done it that way. And I would never encourage someone else to do it. But for me, I was like, this is how you get it. This is how you get it done as a producer. And then I, w- I didn't let anyone else take the fall because it was obviously my fault. So I took like literally, obviously, all of the, the blame for what had happened, even though there were three producers, because it was my responsibility to pick up the sound kit. So it didn't reflect poorly on anyone else or the production. Oh, nice. So, Good solve. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, you, I mean, just like in the situation with you, you, f- you pivot, right? You pivot yeah. and you figure out a way to move forward. I was just thinking as you were talking, it's like, I think almost everything I've ever worked on, there's been a pivot of some kind <laughs> or like something didn't work out the way that we yeah. thought it was going to be. And so we had to pivot, you know, it, it works out, you know, one way or another, like, like the, the other one I was going to talk about was one time I was working on a movie that I was producing and we we're shooting in a supermarket at like 1230 or something. And I had just talked to the bar owner that we're shooting at the next day. And she was like a little nervous, but I explained everything that we we're doing. And she's like, that's okay. I called in the local police to let them know what we were doing because we were going to have a scene with a gun. And they were like, okay, no problem. You reported it like you're supposed to. Let's just confirm with the bar owner and we're all good. And I already called them what we were doing. And then the cop called the bar owner and then she flipped. She was like, the cops are calling me. Like, I knew you were going to have a gun, but I didn't know the cops were going to be involved. I was like, well, of course the cops are going to be involved. She's like, I can't have that kind of heat in my bar. Like, this cops are going to cause all kinds of problems, blah, blah, blah. So we just can't do it. We can't do it. We can't do it. And it's like 1230. She's calling me like while we're shooting the scene in the supermarket. The call time's noon the next day at the bar. And we're like, okay, well, we have no bar now. We need to find a bar in like less than 12 hours, basically. Oh and so I like walked across the street from the supermarket we were in. There was another <laughs> dingy little bar and they were still open. So I go in there and I'm like, hey. What's up? Can we shoot a movie here tomorrow at noon? <laughs> and, and the woman's like, well, I'm not the manager, but she, she might be open to it. Just give her a call. She'll wake up at six. Just leave a message. And she was, maybe you'll catch her now, but she'll, she'll definitely be up by six. Like, just 
to see what happens. But yeah, I mean, we're open and we're very slow on Mondays. So yeah, probably could work. I was like, that would make me very nervous. I was like, I don't know. This seems, so I called like three, like a bunch of other places. I sent a bunch of emails. I was like up to like three and then I woke up at six to like try to that woman again, make sure she got my voicemail. And uh, yeah, she was like, oh yeah, sure. You can come in. <laughs> no problem. You need have to pay, like just buy some drinks and you know, you guys are good. It's all good. Oh my God. And we shot in this bar that was like across just like across the, the plaza from the location we shot before the night before. The DP, like, kind of knew that that might happen. So, he already planned out, like, so we needed a back alley to the bar. He planned out, okay, well, this alley over here next to the supermarket will work. As long as the bar works, we can come back and we can shoot here. And then the thought was, like, even if we couldn't get that bar, like, we could get another bar maybe somewhere else. And But just this will be the alley no matter what, you know? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So, it all worked out. And I mean, I've never had that before or once again where I was able to secure a location within 12 hours. You That's know, the movie gods. Those are the movie gods working their magic. Yeah. It was I crazy. love that the first bar was like, I can't have that kind of heat in my bar. It's like, do you not serve cops? Like, what do you mean you can't have cops in your bar? Like, what are you doing in your bar that is so yeah. shady that you can't have cops there? I don't know. They, but I think they did have some drug operations going out of the bar. So I think that was probably why, <laughs> most likely. Anyways, good times. Filmmaking is fun. If anyone has a great story about like something they did to pivot while they were on set, write us in. We haven't had a, a good You've Got Mail in a long time, so I would love a great story to talk about on the show. Like Ulrich was saying, you can send us a question, comment, story, or suggestion to podcastandmakingmoviesishard.com. If you like the show, you can leave us a review on iTunes. Check us out on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter at MMIH Podcast, YouTube at Making Movies is Hard Podcast. Thanks to Alan C. Gardner for coming on the show and Carter Smith for his amazing patronage of the show. Thanks to editor Jeff Vrymoot for doing the editing. Our producer, Eric Toms, for being awesome. And I wanted actually to shout out both Rick Kaplan and our favorite person, Gary. What's Gary's last name? Kennedy. Gary Kennedy, who both offered to give me notes on my short. So thanks. Thanks, guys. Really appreciate it. Thanks to all of you for listening and talk to y'all next week. And I thought I was optimistic. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, wait, do I I say things now? (laughs) Okay. 